You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time here, we are extremely glad you're here. And I'm glad that all of you that, who are here today were here uh, to hear Tanya Baker Nelson and also about Hand of Hope. We've been praying for them for a long time, supporting them. A lot of you have been involved with Hand of Hope. We've just started supporting this past year. We're going to be increasing. That's part of our budget. The mission uh, team has encouraged us to increase all of our missions, and that's a, a really wonderful thing that we're able to do that. Uh, Allison, every day on her way to school, rides by Hand of Hope on Jones Franklin Road, and she prays for him every day, Monday through Friday, on her way up to teach in North Raleigh. So please do be praying for that. And, you know, it's one of those things. You hear people all the time, you hear say, what we really need is prayer. We have a really good example of why what Hand of Hope needs is prayer with those unlimited resources. Look, the, the, light, the light is fading in the states. And uh, we need to be praying that the darkness does not overcome in this place. Just think about that. Yesterday, three lives saved. And it's a difficult topic. Uh, when you hear Tanya, uh, and I, I've heard her in other settings, where she is very gracious and kind to people who have made the decision to have abortions. That's a difficult thing for people who have made that decision to hear um, what Scripture says about the taking of a life. And so look, if you, you, you're here today and you've had an abortion, please know that Hand of Hope guys are very tender toward you. But think about that yesterday. So let's pray uh, for these guys. Tanya, as Jason said, will be in the welcome room, and Jason and Candace and some of the others. Anybody who has done some work with Hand of Hope, be out in the lobby or the welcome room back in that general area. And that's a way you can get involved. Your home group can get involved locally very quickly. So let me begin this morning by asking you, I know we have a lot of younger ones in here. How many of you like questions? How many of you like riddles? Anybody like riddles in here? All right, a lot of you like riddles, of course, and it would be the younger ones that would be saying, yes, I like riddles. Uh, our son-in-law, Brian Stafford, is the king of riddles. And so every family gathering, there's this huge riddle, and Allison and I quickly find out how much smarter the grandchildren are than we are because they get them just like that. Uh, here's a question. How many of you like this question? What do you want for your birthday? What do you want for Christmas? That is a difficult question for me. You know why? Because as old as I am, this is why, as old as I am, I have everything I need and really I have almost everything I want. That doesn't mean I have everything. There are a lot of things I could want that I don't have, but I really don't care about it. When you get to this age, a good book or a gift card to a restaurant, a really nice restaurant, that's the kind of stuff that I, I like. Um, in fact, I hope that I'll receive three or four books that I do not think I will ever read, but I, love, I just love to stack up books. And Allison, too. She loves books stacking up in our bedroom all over the place. She loves it. So that's what you want to give, you know, that's what you need to know. There it is. You know, when you hear people talk about what they want for Christmas, when you hear people talk about saying, when you hear people say things like, you know, it's not about what we receive for Christmas, but here's what Christmas means to me. And they have unbiblical ideas about what Christmas is. Christmas is about family just doing this and doing that. Christmas is... Everybody being together, and that's true. There's some wonderful things in there, but, but essentially, when people say Christmas is about more often than not, way more often than not, 
they get it wrong. So how do you respond? I mean, are you frustrated? Are you angry? Are you amused? Or are you glad that the notion of Christmas at least means something to people? Well, I'm glad at least you're thinking about these types of things. Or uh, are you tempted to respond like a six-year-old would respond to her younger sibling? No, silly, or to a younger sibling. No, silly. Christmas is about Jesus. A lot of people know that Christmas is about Jesus, but they don't know what that means. I grew up in a Baptist church. I'm sure I heard the gospel many times. Jesus died for your sins, and I didn't have the slightest idea what it meant that Jesus died on the cross for me. I didn't have any idea. And remember this, if the Holy Spirit had not opened your eyes, your answers about what Christmas means might be noble. They might even reflect the character of God. You might say wonderful things about what Christmas should mean to humankind and world peace. But you wouldn't really know what it means that Jesus came. God in the flesh came and lived a perfect life died as a sacrifice because God had to exercise judgment on sin. And Jesus said, I'll take Naomi Grace's punishment. I'll take Kelly Wallace's punishment. I'll do that. And he died on the cross in our place. So, what does Christmas mean? It's about Jesus. It's about God coming to earth in order to die. Born to die that man might live, the song says. What about hope? We're talking about hope this morning. And we're in the book of Isaiah. And it's going to fit very nicely, just like our prayer time did, as we think about hope. This morning, I want you to be open to the possibility that when what you think of as hope is not necessarily what the Bible means when it tells believers that they have hope in Christ. What does it mean that you have hope in Christ? Does it mean you're going to beat this disease? Does it mean that you're going to get that job? Does it mean that you're going to get that boat? Uh, especially not that. But does it mean even these other things that are very noble and good? Does it mean that your child is going to come to Christ? Does it mean all the things that we want it to, or does it mean something more? And look, as we read from Isaiah 61, it's important to remember and understand that, the, that biblical hope meant something entirely different to those who were before Christ and those who were after Christ. It meant something different. And so the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for something. They didn't fully understand it, but they... They latched onto one part of the prophecies, but they sort of let another part of the prophecies go by the wayside, and they missed what God was trying to do. Our hope is not only that Jesus forgives us, that God forgives us because of Jesus, but that we will live eternally with Him in heaven, and that one day all tears will be wiped from our eyes, and we will never again struggle with sin. I don't know about you, but the thing that I'm looking for, forward to in heaven more than anything, other than the fact that I know Joyce down in Fuquay, Joyce's family restaurant is going to be the main cook in heaven. I'm pretty certain of that. Mashed potatoes, fried chicken all the time, all you could possibly want. But the thing I'm going to look forward to more than anything else is that I am done struggling with my own sin with my own flesh, with my own attitudes, with my own temptations, with my own responses and reactions and words. Hope for the New Testament believer is about Jesus' second advent. When we talk about advent, it means Jesus has come to earth. That's what the Jewish people were looking for. They were looking for a Messiah who would deliver them from their sins. When we think about advent on this side of Christ, we're thinking that he is coming back. He's, we're looking back, but we're also looking forward to Jesus' second coming. The Jewish people anticipated some sort of eternal bliss, but their immediate hope was for a political Messiah who would deliver them from their enemies. If you knew how cruel their captors are, those of you who were 7 and 8 and 10 years old, 
do you just love it when your 14-year-old sister or brother gets to watch you while your parents go away? You love that? Is that what you, you love that? Look, you think your sister can be mean. You think your brother can say, all right, you got to do this, this, and this. You don't know anything about the people. The Jewish people were under this terrible oppression from their captors. And if you knew how cruel their captors were, you would understand why their hope was primarily in the here and now rather than down the road in heaven. <clears throat> Especially since that theme was not as well developed in those Old Testament days as they are in these New Testament days. What it's going to be like when you die and you're in heaven. <clears throat> Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 is the text we're going to focus on uh, this morning. Although for our, our, the purposes of our study in Isaiah... All of Isaiah 61 and 62 are included. I surely hope you'll read those chapters this week. Today's reading, in those first three verses of Isaiah 61, come from a, or comes from a translation with which Hebrew scholar Alec Motyer has blessed the world. There's a very literal translation as much as possible, word for word, even the order of the words, not to miss anything in the impact. So after this initial reading, all other scripture reference today will be from the English Standard Version. So if you're here, one of the, your first few times, and you're looking on the screen, say, well, I wonder what version that is. It's the English Standard Version. Even Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, after this initial reading. So it's our custom to ask everyone to stand as the word is read. So if you would, please stand out of respect for God's word. Remember this translation from Alec Motyer. The spirit of the sovereign Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the downtrodden he has sent me, to bandage the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, a real opening up to those who are bound, to proclaim a year of acceptance belonging to Yahweh and a day of vengeance belonging to our God, to comfort all who are mourning, to assign to Zion's mourners, to give them a headdress in place of ashes, oil of delight in place of mourning, a wrap of praise in place of a spirit of listlessness. And they will be called Oaks of righteousness, Yahweh's plantation, that he may display his beauty. Let's pray. Father, we pray that indeed the glory of the Lord would be evident in our hearts this morning as our hearts are open and respond to your word. Just pray that you would speak to us in ways that we need to hear. Lord, much of this is encouragement. Some of it is understanding and perspective. We pray that we would leave this place today full of the hope that Jesus will come again and that he will gather his people to himself. And that when we live eternally with him, we will understand fully the blessings that you have poured out upon us. So we pray that your spirit would be very free to move in our hearts today as your word is preached in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to be referencing several uh, different passages of scripture today. Uh, and although you will be able to connect the dots, it's not like we're going dot one, two, three, four, five. Wonder what's the biggest dot to dot you've ever done. I used to love those when I was small, you know, and you don't, especially if they're well done, you don't really know what the picture is, but you start doing these dots, you connect them, and then it starts to fill in. Well, today, this is one with lots and lots of dots, and we're going to only identify dot numbers one, nine, 26, 43, and 87. So again, you'll get a general idea, but there's a whole lot you can fill in on your own at a later time. 
When Isaiah wrote the last 11 chapters of his prophecy, he was writing to a people who would live one or two centuries in the future. And they would be coming back from Babylon. They would be dragging back to Jerusalem, uh, having still having endured awful suffering in Babylon. And they were still under the imp- oppression of the Medes and the Persians. Um, I'm not sure that any of us have any sense there's no way we can get in our minds what that must be like perhaps if you've moved from another country uh, you would be able to say yeah i know that kind of feeling but just imagine that the united states had been captured by another country i i think most of us think of that as being impossible it's not impossible and typically a lot of times when empires fall they fall just like that overnight But just imagine that the United States, maybe 70 years ago, had been taken over by China. Let's just say China. And 75 to 80 percent of the people of America had been killed in this war. And a lot of the ones who were left were taken off to China. Now we're coming back, but it's not like we're coming back free to do whatever we want because now Russia is in charge of us. Russia has defeated China, and they're in charge of us, but they do send us back to America. And somewhere along the way, the Lord had told our prophets that the Lord would deliver us through a Messiah. That's the hope that was conveyed to the Israelites. Now, God, we don't have that kind of relationship. America does not have the same relationship with Yahweh that Israel did. And so you can get in trouble when you start trying to connect those dots. That's on another picture, and it's really, it's like this, ultimately, if you try to connect those dots. We are not like, there are basic principles in Scripture that if our nation follows those principles, we will be successful. But we don't have that kind of relationship. But if it happened, that would give us a sense of what the people of Israel were experiencing. I mean, there were servant songs in Isaiah that talked about a suffering servant and something about him bearing the sins of the people. Yeah, okay, that's the Messiah probably. I'm not exactly sure what that means, though, but I know what this means. God is going to smash our enemies, and he's going to exalt us in, 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 in all the earth. I understand what that means. In Isaiah 61, the anointed one is speaking. He's promising deliverance for the devastated people. Now, language connects this anointed one with the root of Jesse, the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rests in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. When Scott Shambly designed the slides for this series, that's his, that was his inspiration, the root of Jesse in, in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. So now God has connected this person who is speaking in Isaiah 61 with the root of Jesse in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. At Jesus' baptism, of course, what happened at Jesus' baptism? There were two big things that happened. When Jesus came up out of the water... A dove, a spirit of the Lord came upon Jesus, descending like a dove. And there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So let the dot connecting begin. We're already connecting dots. This is the way the Lord has done in his word all over scripture. Now, if you believe in the Trinity, we've got to ask, who is this person who is speaking? He says very boldly, The Spirit of the Lord God (coughs) is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now, there are some scholars, a lot especially, who would not accept the authority of Scripture. Just saying, well, it's a good book, but it's not really God-breathed. It's an inspired book, but not that kind of inspired book. A lot of people would say, well, Isaiah's talking about himself. (coughs) The Jewish people would have seen... The Messiah, they said, no, this is the Messiah who is talking. And they probably connected those dots in in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 and, and Isaiah 61. But New Testament believers see Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity. 
One promise after another is given in Isaiah 61. And the first blessing that the Messiah brings is to preach good news or the gospel to the poor. Now, I'm going to ask some serious questions in just a few minutes, and it's only going to, and I want answers. I need some answers, and it's only going to be for those who are eight and under. So everybody else, can you can quit paying attention, but those who are eight and under, I'm going to need to hear from you in just a few minutes. Um, so <clears throat> the first blessing that the Messiah brings is that God is preaching, or this Messiah is preaching good news or gospel to the poor. He's not simply bringing encouraging words. He's not just saying, hey, it's going to be better. Or, hey, I understand how you feel. Just take, take courage. I love you. That should be enough. No, he, his words, Isaiah 55 has already told us, his words always accomplish the purpose for which they are intended. <clears throat> how do you interpret God's promises to the poor. They're everywhere in Scripture. God gives special blessings to the poor. Look around. Would you just look around and see how many poor people you see? Poor is a relative term to most of us. Look, I grew up in, in town, with everybody thinking our family was rich, I thought we were poor as Job's turkey because my dad always told us how poor we were. We couldn't do this. We couldn't do that. So, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So I have the tendency to say the same things. Alice, oh, we can't afford that. We can't afford that. And then when it's something that I want, all of a sudden we find money. Um <laughs> She said, amen, is that what you did? Is that what you said? <laughs> Trust me, when the gospel speaks about poor people, when the scripture speaks about poor people, he's not talking about you. Now, again, relatively speaking, some of you are in better shape financially than others are. And if all of a sudden all the credit card companies, all the banks said, okay, need your money now, we would all be poor, right, immediately. In a, in, a, in a New York minute, as they say. So was the gospel not shared with you since you're not poor? Well, it was shared with you. But our prosperity and our freedom work against us in our relationship with God. A lot of people think, oh, it's easy for you to believe in God because you have so much, actually, it's the opposite. Now, what Jesus said, do you believe Jesus when he says it's more difficult for a rich man to enter into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Do you not recognize how our prosperity works against us? Everything looks good until it doesn't. God has his ways of getting our attention. And in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Luke, when he's recording this saying of Jesus, just says, Blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, while it may be true that it's easier to be poor in spirit for those who are poor in the wallet, the, this poverty refers to humility of spirit, while those who mourn, are those who are stricken in heart and grieve over their sin. That's a good thing since, relatively speaking, we are all rich. So back in Isaiah 61, the, the anointed one promises to bring comfort to the brokenhearted. That may be an especially encouraging word for some of you. He will also proclaim liberty to those who are held under sin's burdens. And it will set free the ones held in prison, awaiting judgment. Verse 2 proclaims the year of the Lord's favor and the day of His vengeance. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Over and over and over. For the one who trusts that God will redeem and vindicate 
his people. There is comfort even when there is temporary mourning. Verse 3 is beautifully described by Reed Lessing. It's worth a listen. Here's what Lessing says. Quote, it is as though the people are dressed for a funeral. They dress differently in that day than they do today for a funeral. Ashes on the head. They are wearing ashes and weeping over the loss of a loved one. But wonder of wonders, the funeral clothes will be swapped for wedding garments. The mourner with ashes on his head and wrapped in sackcloth, crushed in spirit with despair, becomes the party goer with a beautiful headdress, smelling of costly oil and wearing a garment of praise. Jesus says, that when he is raised from the dead, the disciples will experience a similar radical reversal. You will weep and lament, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Look, those of you who have lived long enough know what it's like to go from great peace and joy in life to overnight, just sadness. The Lord says, I'm going to reverse all of that. This is your hope that all of that is going to be reversed. For us, we understand that that reversal may not come in this life, but the promise is so intense and so great that it ought to encourage our hearts that one day everything is going to be perfect. So these words in Isaiah 61 must have been comforting to the ones who returned from Babylon. From that time on, people were looking forward for a Messiah. They were looking for uh, God's special person to come. And even though they were never free from oppression from that time until Jesus came, although they did have a a little successful rebellion, they were looking for someone who would deliver them from the oppression of their captors. And then, right as they were looking, Jesus' miraculous birth. So again, okay, here's, here's the question and answer time. Only those who are eight years old or younger. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Um, Was Jesus' family rich or poor? Poor. We think so anyway. We know they weren't. He was a carpenter. So it's not like he was a government official. It's not like he had one of the better paying jobs in town. But they probably may do just fine. I would imagine Joseph was um, a pretty good carpenter. Jesus became a carpenter also growing up. So where did Jesus, speaking of, where did Jesus grow up? In New York. Did Jesus grow up in New York? Hong Kong. In Nazareth. That's it. Nazareth. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Uh, Was Nazareth a big city or a small village? Small village, that's right. Would you expect, now let me just ask you this. We're we're looking for a Messiah. And we're looking really for a strong soldier. Would you expect the Messiah to grow up in Nazareth? Probably not. Because especially your religion connected all the important stuff to the city of Jerusalem. That's where you think the Messiah is. Is going to grow up. You're looking for a strong soldier. Who would lead a rebellion. Against Rome. So Luke 4. Tells us that early in Jesus ministry. He'd been up around Galilee. Nazareth Nazareth was in Galilee. It It was close to the Sea of Galilee. Not too far. But it was sort of up on a hill. A big hill. And Jesus went to his hometown. And he went to the synagogue. Which was like a local church. He went to the church. And he opened the scroll. They said, hey, Jesus, we hear that you're a rabbi now. We want to hear you preach. And so he opened the scroll to Isaiah 61. And he read those words, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the ones that we have already read. And then he looked up and he said, this day the scripture is fulfilled before your eyes. In other words, Jesus was saying... I'm the Messiah. I will deliver you. And let's think about it. Jesus grew up in a poor family. 
He doesn't have military clothes on. He doesn't have a soldier's uh, outfit on. He doesn't, he, he doesn't look all that strong, maybe, although we know Jesus was strong to drive out the money changers in the temple. But he just doesn't look like what they expected for a Messiah. Once again, remember, they were thinking, oh, he's going to be this strong deliverer. Now, there's something about he's going to be one who redeems us from our sins, but that's because he's going to take over and we're going to be on top. And it's a lot easier to serve God when you're on top than when you're on the bottom. Everyone knew, they heard Jesus say, essentially, I'm the Messiah. And they looked around and they said, wow, this guy knows the scripture. But really, I mean, he seems kind of ordinary. We watched him grow up. This is the Messiah? You're kidding. There's no way that he's the Messiah. They couldn't deny that he knew the scripture. And then Jesus went on to imply that open-hearted Gentiles would come into the kingdom ahead of the nation that God had called to be his own. Gentiles are going to come into the kingdom of God ahead of Jews. And so the people said, oh, that's an interesting thought. I never thought about it. No, they didn't say that at all. They grabbed him. They started taking him toward the cliff. They were going to kill him, throw him over his hometown. They were going to throw him over a cliff. But Jesus passed on because it wasn't his time. What happened that the covenant people of God missed who Jesus was? In the case of Nazareth, the people didn't even want to hear about Gentiles being included in the kingdom, much less being preferred over the Jewish nation, God's covenant people, God's chosen people. If you've been paying attention in our study in Isaiah this year, then you have repeatedly seen and heard God's intention to bring Gentiles into the kingdom over and over and over. He says this in Isaiah. The Jews somehow missed God's plan. So is there anything for us to learn from that? Yes, but probably there's more to learn from John the Baptist. John the Baptist, of course, was the one about whom Isaiah prophesied in chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Isaiah had already said this person is going to come. And that's what John the Baptist did. He walked around saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his path. Someone is coming who is going to deliver the, the, the nation from their sins. No one can doubt John's passion for God's righteousness. His humility, which was evidenced in his being willing to step aside when Jesus came onto the scene. You, John could have gotten jealous. <clears throat> Some of his disciples quit following him and they started following Jesus. <clears throat> and people were saying, his other disciples were saying, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? Who does this guy think he is? And John is like, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. He's the one I've been talking about. He must increase. I must decrease. And he said in, in John 1, 29, we, we admire his insight. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. So what did John mean when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth? Well, I don't think he knew what he meant. John was looking for the whole package in a Messiah. A righteous one who forgives sin, but also a powerful leader who would throw off Roman rule. I mean, he was glad to have a, point, a role in pointing people to Jesus. But then, John was thrown in jail. For standing up, for doing the right thing, he stood up to Herod, who had committed adultery, and he called him out. Herod had him thrown in jail. As he sat in prison and he tried to work it out, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was going to 
get rid of this oppression. I thought he was going to bring a kingdom of righteousness. I thought all of our, our rulers, and even though Herod was Jewish, he was under the Roman authority, so he had Roman authority when he put John into jail. And John's like, I can't, this doesn't make sense. Just like some of you, you become a Christian and man, you serve the Lord and you even take flack for serving the Lord. And then all of a sudden, something really bad happens in your life. Someone you love deeply just turns against you, betrays you. Someone in your family that you love very dearly gets sick. And you pray, and the church prays, and they die. What's that about? That's John the Baptist. That's us. That's all of us. If you've not had something to challenge your faith at that level, chances are you will. And I can pretty much assure you, it won't be what you expect. Satan is great at blindsiding us, and God allows him to do it. And you think, well, okay, I see this way, this way, this way that Satan might get me. What do you not understand about blindsiding? That's where John the Baptist was. Nothing made sense anymore. Hope? Really? This is our hope? I'm sitting in a prison? So he sent two of his followers to ask Jesus to confirm that he was indeed the Messiah. Because John never, this just wasn't in the plan. I'm, I'm in jail and, and, and very likely going to die, which he did, we know. And in fact, he died after Herod's daughter had danced very lewdly and said, and Herod said, Ask anything, I'll give you whatever. She said, I want John the Head's Baptist on a platter. What a horrible way for a prophet, a man of God like that to die. When John's disciples asked Jesus, are you the one? Are you really the one who was to come? Jesus just initially didn't answer. He just healed a lot of people, gave sight to the blind. Cast out demons. Then Jesus said this in Luke 7, 22 to 23. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. Because John will know that, that God prophesied this in Isaiah 29, 18. The lame walk. Oh yeah, Isaiah said that too. In, 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 verse, in chapter 35, verse 6. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. Isaiah 35, 5. The dead are raised up. The dead are raised. Isaiah 26, 19. And the cap, the poor have good news preached to them. You remember what the rich thought about the poor in those days. The religious rich thought about the religious poor. God is judging you. That's why you're poor. God is blessing me. I'm a good person. That's why I'm rich. Man, we get close to thinking that today. Riches just do something to us. They make us think that we're right about everything. So, and he said, look, John, you get this. The poor have good news preached to them, Isaiah 61, 1. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, Jesus pointed John to Isaiah. He knew this already. Why did he doubt because of the many references in Isaiah where the Messiah was portrayed as a conquering hero who would defeat and destroy the enemies of God. When Jesus pointed John to the many prophecies in Isaiah that were being fulfilled before his eyes, <clears throat> he was saying the same thing to John. For those of you that have been with the study in Isaiah all year, he was saying that Jesus was saying the same thing to John that Yahweh had said to Ahaz, uh, to Jotham, and to Hezekiah in the first part of Isaiah, kings of Israel, or kings of Judah, who were trying to protect their nation against Assyria, and they were going to this country and that country. Let's make alliances because we got a big bully in the, in the area, Assyria. And if we don't <clears throat> stick together, he's going to overwhelm us. <coughs> and God said, through Isaiah, just trust me. 
Quit trying to make these alliances. I'm going to take care of you. Just trust me. That's what Jesus was saying to John the Baptist. Trust me. We now understand that those prophecies are wrapped up in two different times that Jesus would come to earth. The first time where he paid for our sins and the second time where he will judge the enemies of God who are also the enemies of God's people. Ultimately, they are that. And he will make everything right. Do you believe this? Well, his word to you is, trust me. Have you ever felt like John the Baptist? I mean, you were so sure about Jesus and the life of a disciple. But events or broken relationships have conspired against you and you're tempted to ask, where are you, God? I expected troubles, but this? Or maybe your struggle with sin is such that you think God will abandon you. Surely he will. His word to, all, to you in all of this is trust me. You know what at least one of our problems is? We have everything we need and almost everything we want. Until we don't, that is. That's when the doubts come. Even though we know better, somehow we become entitled in our thinking. Somehow we, we, we reach the point where we not only expect God to treat and deal with us in a certain way, we demand it. Now, we don't think we are, but when it goes haywire, we recognize how hard our hearts are. We may not realize we've created this false God in our hearts until the pressure becomes so intense that we are revealed to be who we thought we were not. The things that come into our lives that tempt us to doubt God are the very things He uses to build poverty of spirit in us. To make us poor in spirit. Look, I say I have everything that I want and need. If our house got taken away from us, maybe there's a glitch in the insurance and it didn't pay. Something happened, some natural disaster, and all of a sudden we're without anything. I, I, I'd be in a whole different place. But for those of us who are doing okay anyway financially, God uses these circumstances to cause us to be poor in spirit. Because pride, success, all of that works against our relationship with the Lord. And when we are in that place, it's then that the hope that we have in Christ means something really great to us. If we fail to have poverty of spirit, we can very easily become like those at the church of Laodicea, about whom the Lord said in Revelation 3.17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Oh my, may this not be true of us. So just before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to share three different ways that God gives you hope as we begin this Advent season. Grateful, we're grateful that Jesus descended to earth the first time and we eagerly anticipate his return. The first one is this, allow sickness and the reversals of life. I said reversals instead of vicissitudes. So I could have said that, but I would have thought I would have been in big trouble for saying that. Allow the sickness and reversals of life to point you to the one who will wipe away every tear. Isaiah taught, prophesied it. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Revelation 21.4. It sounds similar, doesn't it? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's our hope. Second, when relationships are broken, seek comfort in the one who knows 
the depth of your sorrow. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. There are a bajillion verses in the New Testament I could have chosen here. But 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties upon him. For he cares for you. And then last, when your sin threatens to overwhelm you, turn yet again to the one who forgives all your sins. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. I could have Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God uses all things in the life of the believer to point us to himself and to give us hope in a life that doesn't seem all that great. Although we thought it was going to be. Thank you, Jesus. So we come to the Lord's table this morning to remember Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. At this table, the Lord reminds us that He is trustworthy. What is His word to us? Trust me. I died for you. I will come again, and when I return, all the prophecies of Isaiah and all of Scripture will be fulfilled. So, I'm going to ask the elders and deacons and music team, if they would, to come forward as I give instructions for our time at the table. We invite all those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. You're not trusting in your good works. You're trusting only in the, <clears throat> in the death of Christ for your salvation. We invite you to join us at this table for this meal that is reserved for believers. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be coming forward to receive today. You'll come forward. There will be a station with elders and deacons in front of each of your sections, go to the section that is in front of you unless one of the ushers directs you in another way. <clears throat> they will tell you when to come uh, forward. We will have someone in the back. If you are unable to come forward, just please raise your hand and they will come to you and serve you at your table. You can partake in the front or you can take back to your seat and partake there. Uh, I want to read from 1 Corinthians 11. As we prepare to come to the table, Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're talking about two advents at this table. Jesus has come. He has died for us. He's gone back to heaven. We are looking forward to him returning. And we proclaim his death until the day that he returns in coming here. Is, is, this, is this act, this communion, is this something we do for God or is it something he does for us?
The answer is yes. You, you know, those of you who have been here, that is often the answer. Not always, but it is often the answer. Is yes. He is saying to us, I'm trustworthy. Believe me. And we're saying to him, I believe you. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And that's my only hope. My only hope in this life or the next that I know Jesus as my Savior. <clears throat> All of the Old Testament prepared the way for the day that Jesus would take the bread and break it and say, this is my body given for you. And when he would take the cup and say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is spilled out for many, for the forgiveness of sins for many. As we come to this time, um, the servers will be served first and then we'll come forward. And the team will lead us, the music team will lead us in our worship in song. Let's pray. And as we pray, just take a moment. If there is something you need to confess to the Lord, this table assures you of forgiveness. So don't say, oh, I've been an awful person this week. Confess your sin now and come. I mean, don't say, I've been an awful person and so therefore I shouldn't take communion. No, confess your sin and come. But just take a moment to do that privately. Father, as we come to this table, we marvel at your plan for our redemption. It may not be as concrete as it was to the Israelites in our minds because we don't have people who are oppressing us, not at the level they did anyway. But we all know of our failures and our inability to be good enough to get to heaven. But Jesus came and died in our place. And thank you that you invite us <clears throat> to this table again and again. To be blessed in remembering the sacrifice that was made for our sins. And to proclaim our commitment not only to Jesus but to all those in the body of Christ with whom the Lord has placed us. So we pray your blessings on the bread. We pray your blessings on the cup. Give thanks for Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.